Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Game Talk Radio. I'm Greg, and uh, we're going to be covering, uh, covering a couple topics today. Uh, some of the big ones uh, we're going to talk about uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Atari founder Nolan Bushnell uh, had an award that was actually rescinded. He was going to receive the Pioneer Award at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco in March. Uh, that would have recognized his 40 years of involvement in the industry. Uh, however, uh, after a little bit of a Me Too outcry, uh, then they actually decided to rescind uh, that award this year. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about the new bill in Hawaii that they're introducing that's supposed to combat loot crates in games, which is very interesting. Then we're going to talk about a game called Kingdom Come Deliverance, which uh, re released today and has a huge day one patch. And then we're going to follow up with a little bit of congratulations to Monster Hunter and all of its success as some more sales figures came out. But getting to the key article, the key news thing we want to talk about today. So like I said, um, Bushnell was supposed to receive an award in March that was basically the Pioneer Award. I mean, this is the, you've been working in the industry for so long, you've been a part of this industry for so long, here's an award for you know, for doing what you did. Essentially, he, you know, he created Pong, which eventually led to what you could argue led to the incredible explosion of the video game industry here. Now, while you could argue that Atari later crashed that market and Nintendo came in and kind of saved it, you can't help but give props to, uh, you know, the original Atari for, um, you know, s striking the match, I guess, that led to, led to the expansion and everything. So, like I said, he was set to receive the Pioneer Award, which would recognize his 40 years of involvement in the industry. Uh, he set up Atari in 1972 with uh, Ted Dabney, and uh, that's where they created Pong, uh, Pong. So then as soon as that was announced, though, and this is where things got a little... I got a little strange right away because, you know, everybody just kind of thought, okay, you know, yeah, the dude co-created Atari. Of course he's going to get recognized. And then uh, we started having sort of a, uh, which oftentimes happened now with these things, but there was a bit of an outcry on Twitter and basically had said, uh, had come out like, a, for instance, uh, Jillian Smith tweeted out, while other industries are distancing themselves from abusive and sexist behaviors of powerful men, GDC is giving a pioneer award to one of them. I only hope they reverse their decision to honor Nolan Bushnell, whose sexual harassing behavior is well documented, and then started the hashtag not Nolan. So that was, you know, so then all of a sudden there was all these things kind of coming out. Um, and then I think it was like 18 hours later, or maybe a day later, they decided on uh, that they were going to, since the outcry on social media, they were going to pull back that award and just not issue it to anyone. Uh, so that's kind of the story that that's the intro to the story. That's not actually what I wanted to talk about, but that's kind of what happened a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, he even, he even came out and, and said, um, well, here, let me start with this. So the game developers conference came out with a statement and their statement was quote, the game developers choice awards advisory committee who vote on the special award winners for each show have made the decision not to give out a pioneer award for this year's event following additional feedback from the community. They believe their picks should reflect the values of today's game industry and will dedicate this year's award to honor the pioneering and unheard voices of the past. So after after they made that announcement, this is what uh, Bushnell's statement said. So he came out and said, quote, I applaud the GDC for uh, ensuring that their institution reflects what is right, specifically with regards to how people should be treated in the workplace. And if that means an award is the price that I'd pay personally, so the whole industry be, uh, be more aware and sensitive to these issues, I applaud that. 
if my personal actions or the actions of anyone who ever worked with me offended or caused pain to anyone at our companies, then I apologize with reservations. So that's what he kind of said. So he didn't come out and deny it. He basically said, you know, I, I give them credit for having morals. And if that's what GDC wants to do that, you know, basically he took essentially took the high ground. I'm sure he's not happy about it. And I'm sure it would have been a, quite an honor for him to get that award. So anyway, this was just kind of the setup. And so you're like, okay, this is, you know, this is what it is. And, and, um, this is, it's over. Right. And then, and, and again, I know people will roll their eyes and, and I'm not a huge fan either, but I think lately they've been doing some really good investigative stuff. Um, so then we have Cecilia Dinastasio. Uh, <laughs> Sorry if I got that wrong. So she wrote an article uh, entitled Sex Pong and Pioneers. What Atari was really like according to the women who were there. So I found this incredibly interesting because it initially where you want to go when you hear this story is you want to go to, well, it was different 40 years ago. You know, it was a different time. We had different understanding. And that is totally true. You could argue there was a different time five years ago. Even last year, before all the Harvey Weinstein stuff came out, he may have still gotten this award. It's just basically it's, you know, it's the shifting tides of like public sentiment that you could argue is kind of what is all going on here. So, you know, what's okay now wouldn't be okay or what's not okay now would have been fine a year ago because the, the public opinion hadn't shifted on that topic. And it's, it works the same way in politics, too. It's so odd what, what was not acceptable five years ago is just scoffed at and not a big deal today. And so this article actually interviewed a total of 12 women uh, who used to work at Atari starting from its inception uh, all the way through the 80s and 90s. Uh, one of the employees worked there until 99, uh, where she because she it talks about how she started. Um, she started off at two dollars and 25 cents an hour, which was 60 cents above minimum wage. So just like imagine that uh, in 1973, you know that was minimum wage. That was uh, which I think minimum wage is 7.25 now, if that sounds right. I think uh, 7.25. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and obviously different states have different, you know, whatever. So this article, as I started reading it, I really thought it was going to go down this, you know, look at all these horrible stories because Bushnell himself hasn't really been doing himself any favors over the last few years. And I think he really enjoyed the mythos around Atari, um, because he was interviewed, uh, by many, uh, he was interviewed by Playboy. He, he had a, there was a, a book written about it, the company of Atari in the seventies and eighties. Uh, which he was only there uh, until the late seventies anyway, mid mid seventies anyway. But I think he embraced what we had all known about, which was this kind of, Oh, there's a lot of like weird things. It was like a party atmosphere, you know, and all this other stuff. Playboy, like I guess I didn't interview, you know, talking about how they used to have, you know, weed and hot tub parties. And they used to have, you know, and there were people wearing, you know, women wouldn't wear bras and people would wear, you know, bikinis to work. And, and it was just like lawless, you know, but it was, but it was fun and it was hip and it was cool. And so he's had articles over the years talking about that. And unfortunately that's kind of the ammo that everyone's using against him now is, you know, you've admitted in 2012 in an interview that, <laughs> that, you know, you had a hot tub and you were proud of the fact that workers would go to a hot tub and have quote unquote board meetings and stuff like that. And so, unfortunately, he hasn't been doing himself any favors because he's he's been embracing this sort of 
playboy mentality, this this hip and cool idea, and he liked that. And I think that's part of the problem here is he he has loved that image. Now, whether that image was accurate or not, I think that's fair to look at um, because time gets very distorted, especially after 40 years. Personally, I again, it is a very it was a very different time then. And certainly GDC is allowed if they don't want to give someone an award this year. But you had some people uh, saying things like, you know, it's not that he doesn't deserve an award for being a pioneer. Just now is not the right time. And that's a really weird argument to me, too, because, I mean, if, if you believe that he shouldn't get an award because of things he's done, I mean, it's not like that's ever going to change. It's not like the past is ever going to change. But just because of the public outcry now, it's almost like you want to be more sensitive to the outcry. You're not actually being sensitive to the actual, you know, the, the claimed um, accusations at that point because you don't care what happened. You just don't want it to happen now. And, and so I totally understand, you know, how offensive this could be. And, and you've got people, you know, you watch shows like Mad Men and you've got, you understand that in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was a very different culture. Even a movie like Anchorman, which is a total joke, it, it still uh, has some historical accuracies and it talks a lot about what it was like for women in the workplace trying to break into industries where it was difficult uh, because men, male dominate industries. So what's weird though is, as, as I'm reading this article, they start talking about how Atari was actually quite friendly to hiring female employees, and it was one of the better places that they worked. And most people, when they quote anything from their time working here, they all had positive things to talk about, which is, I don't know, very interesting, I guess. You, you'd think with an article like this that all you would have is people saying, oh, yeah, I worked there, and here's what happened, and this was horrible, and this was bad. And so... Once they pulled the award and all this stuff started coming out, um, Kotaku decide, uh, Cecilia decides to write this article, which is excellent. Uh, I will put a link to the article in there because it, it was a great read. I, I, I expected to skim it, and I actually read through the whole thing. It was really interesting. And again, this isn't going to be a conversation about how what's going on with the Me Too movement. Is it ruining games? We're not going to cover stuff like that because that's you know not what we're here to talk about. We're here to kind of talk about what, what was Atari actually like and what do these women actually have to say about their time there. And that's more what I wanted to get into. So uh, we had, let's see here. Um... Uh, now, some people, uh, let's see, I want to bring up my article here because I took some notes. So, um, the, uh, so one of the first ones said, so this was uh, Lonnie Reeder, who worked at Atari for two years, and then later co-founded a company with Bushnell, so actually stopped working at Atari, but co-founded another company with him. This is her quote, it's drive-by assassination. I think there's an element of telephone being played. Every day was not a wet t-shirt contest. She then added, there's a collective anger amongst us toward the individuals who made this a big deal. So she's saying that there's actually a bunch of her friends that used to work at Atari who are actually upset that people who may not have worked there are blowing this thing up and talking about things that they didn't have any firsthand contact with. So that brings up another interesting question. Do people who had nothing to do with that situation have a right to be offended by it? I don't know. I mean, I guess you're, you're allowed to feel however you want, but should they be the ones who are pushing for things like an award to be pulled back when, you know, they have nothing to, they, they weren't in that situation. How can they say me too in that description if they never worked at Atari when it, you know, pertains to that, you know, the me too movement was I've suffered too. And, and it's a very valid movement and it's, uh, I, I believe in it quite a bit and I've seen it firsthand how uh, chauvinistic and horrible like some workplace environments can be. 
So, um, but now, uh, because obviously you talk about now, if somebody, you know, if you went to a company now and you heard that there was a hot tub party and that, that, uh, you know, alternating days for, for guys and girls. (laughs) And then on Friday was co-ed. I mean, that would never happen in a workplace now, but it, you know, but this is, this was a different time again, but this was, and I'm not even gonna say it was something that was necessarily allowed because this was even weird for businesses back then. I mean, this was essentially one of the first tech startups that ever happened. And so look at some of the tech startup stories you have too. Like you've got, you know, weird stories about Google and, and all these other places too, where they just had this weird thing or they had this weird thing happen or not necessarily as it re- pertained to this environment where there were, you know, hot tubs and, 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 and weed being smoked in the hallways while blasting rock and roll music. Uh, but you know, they also had stories that made them kind of peculiar at the time, you know, the, the free love 60 seventies. I mean, the summer love 69, you're not gonna, you're not gonna run into, Many people who back then thought that this wasn't this was a sort of cool, hip, young, rebellious thing. That's what it was. It was it was sex and it was drugs and it was rock and roll, you know, uh, just like the uh, <laughs> just like the title says, sex, pong and pioneers. But anyway, so I wanted to go over some of the quotes from some of the other people that worked there. So Evelyn Seto, a graphic designer who inked Atari's original logo and helped design the Atari 2600 and 5200 console box packaging, said she had a couple negative experiences, but it was mostly innuendo, before adding, I don't want to talk about it. So that's not, you know, that, that's not very good. That's not a good start to this. So obviously that person had some sort of negative um, experience there. Uh, then we have another one, Bailey, said in a 2012 interview, it was a culture that I don't think they were thinking, there's one woman we should modify her behavior for her sake. I just grew a thicker skin reached for comment via email. Uh, she also said that she's not currently participating in interviews about Atari because she's currently writing a screenplay about her time at Atari. <laughs> so she couldn't talk a whole lot about it. Uh, Wanda Hill was an electrical mechanical drafter um, who sketched out patterns and printed circuit boards for games like Asteroids. Uh, when Hill and her engineering kin moved to a new mustard yellow engineering building, she was tasked with drawing up plans for a volleyball court. Employees, many of whom were in their 20s, changed into short shorts and crop tops to play. There was a certain amount of sexism as far as ogling, she said, but that went both ways. Uh, Hill left in the early 80s. If I could have advanced more there, I would have loved to have stayed. So she says that, yeah, there were people ogling each other and there was stuff going on, but it was both ways, men and women. So it wasn't that women were being held down. It was just that that was the culture there. You had this kind of, you know, fast and loose. Now, again, that was early 80s. That was actually after Bushnell was gone anyway. Uh, Then you had uh, Carol Cantor. Uh, She said Bushnell would make lewd comments, but always with a smile on his face, jokingly, or tease her employee Colette Wheel enough to make her face turn red. Uh, One time, Nolan approached us and said, hey, we're going to my house to get in the hot tub where clothing is optional, said Holly Latmong, who also worked on the Pong assembly line. We were like, yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) So, yeah, he walked up to him and was like, hey, we're going to do a hot tub party at my house, as to which which they just replied, nah, it's okay. And uh, uh, so then we have a quote from Elaine Shirley. I honestly think it was a joke who uh, who was also there. Uh, it was at a company party. We laughed and said no and continued on our way. It was no big deal. With all my heart, I believe he was joking. So these are these are direct quotes from people that that were there, you know, and that didn't feel like any of this stuff was a negative sentiment. Um, and then uh, Chevalier uh, went on to say, 
where are you going to meet a man when you're young? Because they talked about how you could date in the workplace and that it wasn't a big deal. You know, now even asking out people in the workplace can be deemed inappropriate. It can be deemed harassment. You know, here there, you know, the thought was, well, where do you meet people except at work? You know, how are you going to find a good boyfriend if not at work? Sorry, my cat keeps like running around and I'm trying not to get her to jump up and, and stick her tail in the camera like she always does. <laughs> uh, so uh, after 26 years, after she first walked onto that Pong assembly line, Elaine Shirley took another job, one where her new boss lost his temper and yelled. She tried to quit in her first meeting. Uh, she told him that she came from a company where everyone was nice and not mean. And, and then lastly, uh, Cecilia goes on to say, Cecilia goes on to say, Sorry, my thing closed out here. She goes on to say, it was a quarter of women I interviewed said they could claim me too, hashtag, but that their time at Atari had nothing to do with it. And so those are some of the quotes uh, from the people that actually worked there. So now we have to kind of get into... All right, and a quick edit there because uh, like I was saying earlier, I was trying to stop my cat from jumping up. And of course... She did. <laughs> so getting back to the topic at hand here. Um, <laughs> so now we have to ask ourselves again, who who's responsible for that? Was that was that Bushnell uh, who was responsible for bringing in a, a bunch of women to work on their assembly line? Was it you know, was it up to him to make sure that it was a safe workplace for women and did he do that did he not and so you have all these different questions uh, about atari at that time and i think it's fair to say obviously none of that stuff would go along today but that was kind of the rock star mentality and that was what was hip and against the grain and cool at that time personally i do think he should still get a pioneer award and if the only people that don't want him to have it are the people that just say it's not a good time now I think that's also incorrect. I really don't believe that there's a better time to have an award just because of public sentiment. I, I just really don't like that. And I don't know. Now, if they've decided that because of that past that they don't want him to have an award, that's a different argument. And, and I and I think if you're going to have a pioneer award, you know, he would be the quintessential pioneer you'd want to honor. But does that mean there aren't other people to honor that might not have such a quote-unquote checkered past well you could probably find other people <laughs> that could be just as fitting for an award like that um so i don't know it's 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 such a it's such a tough subject to touch because certainly there's a lot of people that get easily offended by certain things and you never want to offend people but then there also comes a time where you have to be able to say something sometimes and so you, you don't want this you don't want this attitude of well i'm gonna live my whole life trying not to offend anyone I mean, I try in my everyday life to be a good person and I try not to offend people. But what can you, I mean, you can't not offend anyone nowadays, it kind of seems. And so, you know, I think he should be recognized and I think he has been recognized uh, for his achievements and for the, the what he's done for the industry. Um, and unfortunately, if he doesn't get an award from GDC because, you know, because of, of the current sort of, um, you know, social uh you know backlash that's going on over over legitimate things and again let me state that these are this is a legitimate movement and this is a legitimate topic we need to be talking about is sexism in the workplace and 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 women not having the same opportunities we have to be aware of those sort of things but then we have to really really be careful and when we're talking about retroactively adding these things on we gotta be careful with that because i just don't like the idea that 
I don't like the idea that anyone could have said anything one time and have everything else erased. You know, and again, it depends on on the severity of it. So let's say we're talking about, oh, you know, oh, he was a great guy, but he murdered somebody one time. Well, yes, yes, that that does constitute wiping away some of the good things you have done, obviously. Um, but when people around you speak well of you, and most people that worked there didn't have a negative experience there from the people that were interviewed in this article, obviously. So I think that's fair is you have to look back at the time and you have to look at the people who were there and what they thought about it, what they felt. Um, and if and if they were okay with it and they enjoyed the work environment, I think that's a good thing. Now, um, a couple things that were noted in here, I'm going to try to find it down here because there are some really interesting stats that I find quite disappointing too. Um, oh, here, actually, here's some really funny things too. So apparently uh, they made it, the game Gotcha and then they put... <laughs> <laughs> they, on the joysticks, they put a couple like pink domes that were supposed to resemble uh, women's breasts, I guess. So that's that's pretty funny. And that game did exist. Um, that's one of the things they were using against Bushnell is that see how sexist that was that he created that. But he himself did not create that. And so there also is a little bit of misinformation going on about what is attributed to what Bushnell did or didn't do. Now, again, if it happened under his watch. OK, you know, like as the boss, you're still responsible for things like that. So. Um, all right. <clears throat> So there were some really, really sad statistics, though. Oh, never, I'm sorry. Before I can get there, they apparently shot a 70s porno called A Cadillac Named Desire, and that was filmed at Atari headquarters. <laughs> so it's, you know, that was that was the cool thing back then, I think. It was cool to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, it was the 70s, and, um, you know, that that's kind of, that was a thing. That, that was the rebellious thing. You know, now I'm not quite sure. Like, if you looked at what today, what the rebellious thing is, I'm not sure, actually, what it would be. Um, okay, so let's see here. Um, I want to get to it. It wanted to say it was something like only 15% of game designers, game developers, identify as female. So that's the, And that's a big shift. Like, apparently in the mid-80s and 90s, it actually, pe women in the tech industry and video game industry actually declined. And I think it's fair to say that men and boys were more apt to video games. So then you had those inspiring those people to make those next generation of video games. So it's kind of cyclical. Now, though, since we have so many uh, women and girls playing games, that that is inspiring women and girls to make games as well. But it's going to take some time to catch up, I think. And it's unfortunate, but I don't uh, I don't necessarily think that it was like a, a like a, a gatekeeping sort of thing. Like, I don't think guys were keeping women out of the industry. I just think it was kind of a social shift. You know, I, I was actually talking to, um, I was on the new, I'm going to be on the news actually tomorrow because they were talking about the, um, is video game an addiction and they're putting that on the uh, channel two news. And so she was asking me about it and even she was like you know oh I, I when i was young i played games with with the boys because you know they had video games i didn't and and so it was like almost like she, even her as a younger person i think her first system was a uh, super nintendo or n64 she was talking about how she it, video games weren't for her she just played when she was hanging out with the boys and so even up to that point there was this uh there was this you know um unbalance of the genders and their roles in, in enjoying video games, which I think is being shattered now. I mean, now I would argue that, you know, back in the day when it was 90% boys, 10% girls, now you're looking closer to 50-50 or, or 40-60. Um, I don't have any hard data to back that up. Just from the customers I see, it doesn't, you know, I always say this to customers at the store, but it used to be whether you play, like, um, whether you played games or not, and now it's do like what games do you play? 
it's almost like now if you don't play video games in some form or fashion, whether it's an arcade game or it's a mobile game or something, then you're kind of the strange one. <laughs> like You're the one who's left out because of that. Um, so that's really all I had to talk about with that. I, uh, it was a really interesting article. I highly recommend going to read it. It was very, very good. And it wasn't, uh, I didn't feel it was biased at all. And I, and I would not be surprised if the person who wrote this article wanted to interview these women and was expecting to get just all these horror stories and actually ended up coming out with people who spoke very, very highly about their time there. So a uh, very interesting story about old school Atari. Anyone who loves video game history, obviously you want to check it out. Uh, and, and I like anything like that. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, The Console Wars, uh, talking about the, even though it was majorly from a Sega perspective, it was it was interesting read learning about all the industry stuff from the the 16-bit wars and, and going back to the the 80s and 90s of uh, Sega battling Nintendo and trying to dethrone them. Just an incredible read. Um, so then, moving on from that story was moving on to the new bill being introduced in Hawaii that wants to regulate loot boxes. So if you're new to the channel, you may not have seen it, but I do have a video rant I did on Star Wars Battlefront 2 being pay to win. Uh, I am not a fan of loot boxes at all. I know a lot of people will stick up for them when they say things like, hey, it's cosmetic only, it doesn't affect the game. I, I actually don't like that either, especially because of the randomness aspect to it. I would rather have a system where I'm earning points through winning and I can use those points to unlock whatever I want. I hate the idea of having to randomly get it. I played, I used to play, I'm, I'm officially retired. I hit platinum and then retired, but I used to play rocket league and I hated that loot box system. I would get the same items over and over again. And yeah, I know you can cash those items in. Like you can, you can break items down and, and uh, upgrade to a better item, but I just, why, why, why is that cool? You know? And I remember I had like, cause they randomly give you the crates, but you get those for just playing matches. So you get crates and then you have to buy the keys to open the crates. You buy the keys and then the crates just randomly give you whatever you want. And, and, and loot boxes, random loot boxes have become an enormous moneymaker for these companies. But it used to be that a game would be free and then you'd have loot boxes and the loot boxes are how you, your game made money. Okay, I mean, I still don't like it, but I understand that that's your business model. However, now you've got full retail, $60 games, not that Rocket League's a $60 game, but you have full retail, $60 games coming out. And then they also tack on loot boxes on top of that. So it, it just is kind of mental. And then you've got people who make the argument that, well, if they didn't do that, then games would cost 80 bucks nowadays. No, no, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. And there's nothing wrong with scaling back development. One of the issues I have with game, current game development is they spend so much money advertising and making a game look good that they just don't spend as much time making it a good game. Like, I do believe that there's a AAA game crash coming, and it's it's been it's been you know staved off by having you know loot boxes and things like that pop up, but. It, it's going to happen, and that's why this indie revolution has been kind of so great is because now you can prove that one person or two people can make a game, and they can make a game on a limited budget and be successful with it. You don't have to have a $60 retail game with microtransactions that cost you know, $100 million to make to be able to make your money back. You don't have to do that, and, and that's awesome. That's a good thing, and I'd like to see that shift go on. But getting to the bill at hand. So, um, and the news actually came that there was a, a representative who was working on these bills so back in november he had he was he had claimed i'm going to be working on these bills so uh we have um the first set of bills house bill 2727 
and Senate Bill 3025 would require video game publishers to prominently label a game with loot boxes, similar to how the tobacco industry has to display the risks of smoking on cigarette packaging and advertising. According to the bill, a game's label warning will read, Warning, game contains in-game purchases and gambling-like mechanisms which may be harmful or addictive. Should the game be purchased online, the game's key art would need to also prominently display the, uh, the warning. That's actually a, a key point. As more games get digital or are digital only, they have to prominently put that on the box art. Now, as a game collector, uh, I'm not a big fan of having warnings on the box. I kind of hate the ESRB ratings that are on the box, but, you know, already. Which is funny because the ESRB actually has an adult-only rating, and the uh, and the ESRB came under fire last year because they're supposed to comment if a game has gambling in it, and they don't consider loot boxes gambling, which I find really interesting. Uh, I I think that that's more of an industry thing. They don't want to hurt the industry that they're all a part of, even though I think that's quite the definition, <laughs> quite the very definition of gambling. So anyway, uh, additionally, should the bill pass, publishers will be prohibited from updating a game post-release to feature loot box mechanics. Now that's very interesting. So that means if it's not in the game from the beginning, it can't be put into the game later. Very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, it would make sense because that would be how they'd try to get around having it on the box art. But that's that's actually well thought out. Like whoever wrote this is actually understands the industry quite a bit because they know that's how they'd get around it. Now, the second set of bills, House Bill 2686 and Senate Bill 3024, go one step further. This is the interesting part. Uh, detailing, excuse me, I lost my place there. Um, looking to prohibit the sales of games with loot boxes to anyone under the age of 21, which is the current minimum age to gamble in the state of Hawaii. Should the bill pass as detailed by the lawmakers, it shall be unlawful for any retailer to sell to any person under 21 years of age a video game that contains a system of further purchasing one a randomized reward or rewards or two a virtual item which can be redeemed to directly or indirectly receive a randomized reward or rewards so that's also saying that you can't get a randomized reward but you also can't use points to buy a virtual item to get redeemed to earn rewards so they're they're already thinking of how the video game industry would have gotten around this um so now th this is uh, this is an article from Rolling Stone that I wanted to finish up because they just really detail it really well. One of the unknown ramifications of the latter two bills is how they change the way games are bought and sold. For the past 20 years or so, the ESRB has a set of a set list of ratings for games and who they can be sold to. Now, technically, yes, but the ESRB rating is not law. So there's no law that says a 10 year old can't buy a mature rated game. Oftentimes, though, companies sign on with the ESRB. So you've got stores like GameStop, Walmart. They'll actually card people and um, not allow people to buy games if they're not old enough. So that's a thing, but it's not technically a law. The ESRB rating is not a is not a, a, a law-based entity. It is just, a, essentially, it's a recommendation-based one. Um, so... Uh, has a set list of ratings for games and who they can be sold to. These rating systems range from everyone to mature, as you know, if you know anything about the ESRB, which prohibits the buying and selling of a game to anyone under 17 year old without a legal guardian. But again, that's not a law. There's no law against that. And I'm very happy that that's not a law because we don't want that. We don't want the ESRB becoming the law of who can play and, and, and pick games. Um, so anyway, uh, that is the story.
And my take on that is the that's actually very good, I think. Um, mostly because I'm not, I'm not much of a fan actually of, of extra regulation, governmental regulation on the things I love. Like I was saying there, I don't want the government to make it illegal to buy mature rated games. However, loot boxes are seriously becoming a negative, uh, customer experience. So what are you going to do to make that experience less negative with, if you don't take those out, it's, it's quite simply obnoxious and it's anti-consumer. And I'm not saying that people don't like loot boxes. A lot of people like loot boxes. But do you like them because you actually like getting the same item over and over again? Or do you just like it because we love the randomness? I mean, they sell those, um, they sell figures that are, you know, random. Like they're packaged. And it's like, oh, see which ones you get. And then you get a bunch of them. Japan uh, has done that for a very, very long time. Uh, but they've got a very gambling heavy culture too. And as do we. But these are the sort of things that. I have no problem with the game industry getting out of the gambling industry. I think it's been it, it's it's been stretching what is decent for a while, and I would love to see this start to happen, and then have the game developers go. You know what? If we can't sell the game in Hawaii, if we put this in here, let's take it out. But again, it always comes down to money, right? So, if if they look at it and say, well, if we can't sell it in Hawaii, we're gonna lose a hundred thousand sales, but we would make that money back if we have gambling in the game. So we're going to leave it in. And then what that does is that hurts the people of the states and the regulations against it. Now, again, if they put something like this on that you can't play unless you're 21, they're not banning the practice. So that would just mean that no one could get the game if they were under 21. But what you do is you have your your parents go in and buy it, and then you play it. I mean, it's just how it's going to go. It's I, I remember <laughs> I got a copy of Mortal Kombat when I was like 12, and it was fine. Not that, again, that most places probably didn't care back then, though, and that wasn't even the ESRB back then. That was just Sega enforcing its own sort of rating system after Nintendo, you know, kind of uh, attacked them for being, you know, anti-family uh, you know, anti friendly, um, which is a really interesting story because then Sega brought up the fact that the Nintendo sells a super scope, which is literally a bazooka. <laughs> that sits on your shoulder and you shoot things with. So Nintendo really couldn't take the moral high ground when they were selling gun peripherals as well. So I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on that as well in the comments, because it, it is a tough one. Again, I'm not a big fan of over government regulation. I, you have to let companies, especially creative industries, you have to let them do their thing. But this has nothing to do with the creativity of a game. This has to do with the monetization of a game. It has to do with the abusing of of what's decent when it comes to gambling. And I, I do believe that random loot boxes are gambling, and I don't think we should have to dance around that anymore. But I'd very much like to see, I'd very much like to see those things go away. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll pretty much stick up for anything that's going to take away loot boxes at this point. Uh, so moving on from that, I wanted to, to talk about Kingdom Come Deliverance. So this is a new game that came out today, and this is not me doing a review. Instead, no, this one made the newswire because Kingdom Come Deliverance has. A day one patch, which isn't uncommon. Most games do. I think Monster Hunter had like a 800 megabyte day one patch. And I, you know, most games will have like a 200 to 400 meg day one patch. So balancing somewhere. Oh, not Kingdom Come Deliverance. Kingdom Come Deliverance, everyone, has a over 20 gigabyte day one patch. I, okay. I, how, like, is it missing the game? Right. And this almost sounds like something similar to the games on the switch where you have to download to play certain modes because they can't fit the entire game on the switch. Obviously not the same story with this. You could fit this entire game on a Blu-ray, but it's, it sounds like that, but it has nothing to do with the same side of story. So what, what could possibly be wrong with a game 
that it needs a 20 gig day one patch. So a little history of Kingdom Come Deliverance because this one's been a little rocky. So I'm going to bring up this, uh, the history here. So in 2014, I believe it was, they started a Kickstarter to fund the project. It has been worked on since 2009 from some people that left Crytek and they wanted to make a historically accurate like medieval RPG. Cool. I, it sounds cool to me. They, they went through, they almost ran out of funding. They found a private billionaire to fund the rest of it. They're from uh, the Czech Republic, I believe. And they found someone to finalize the, to give them some more money. And that money was running out and bring in 2014 where they decided to do crowdfunding because they couldn't convince anyone to give them more game if they couldn't prove that there was a want for that title. So they opened up a Kickstarter to raise 500,000 euro, I think it was, which would basically be like 10% of development costs. Well, they raised it. They ended up raising through their website after and the Kickstarter and everything. I want to say around 2 million US is what they raised. And that was in 2014. So now four years later, people who backed that project are finally, finally getting the game. And I'm sure over the last couple of years, there were people who were very nervous about that game never coming out. But they're waiting and they're waiting. So the game finally comes out. Day one, 20 gigabyte patch. This game has been through the ringer. And, and what it honestly looks like to me is it looks like another two worlds or another Gothic or another Arcania where it's going to be janky. And it's going to be, you know, it's not going to have the polish of a Skyrim, even though Skyrim is usually really buggy. It does have a certain amount of polish to it that these games don't have. It looks just very rough around the edges. So maybe a 20 gigabyte patch day one is not a bad thing. <laughs> so let, let's look into what, uh, you know, what, what this patch is because it's got to be something huge, right? So first we have a quote from the developers of the game, uh, the company called Warhorse. Now here's what they claim is the reason for the hefty download. Quote, the production realities of console game development mean that release version has to be submitted some three months before the actual release date. We could have used these three months to get some rest, or we could use it to create some additional content and sell it to you as DLC, but we went back to the version to be released and worked on it and tweaked it and polished it, and the results are obvious. Quests are more balanced, RPG progression is smoother, the game runs faster and is very stable, every facet of the game got some polish. The drawback, of course, is that most of the data in the old build were replaced and have to be downloaded as a patch at a hefty size. It's going to take some time, and it's a shame. Still, we strongly believe that a four-year wait, <laughs> it will pay off to wait a little bit longer while the day one patch is downloading. Trust me, it will deliver the awesome experience you deserve, end quote. So there's a couple things going on here. One, yes, they're correct. Most games have a day one patch because it does take time to go gold, to have the disc printed, and to get into store shelves. That's why there's often day one patches, because they've found things and they've fixed things since the original game launched. However, recently, uh, with the advent of patching and the internet-connected gaming, we have now reached into this world of, hey, I can release kind of a broken piece of crap, and it's okay because I can always patch it later. So do you remember a time... Everyone, when a game came out and it was finished, <laughs> and I'm not even talking DLC, I'm talking it was, it worked and it didn't need a patch because you couldn't patch the game. It had to go through much more rigorous testing, had to go through many, many other um, waves of quality control because once that game hit the shelves, you couldn't have a game breaking bug found in it because you had to recall all the copies remake them and ship them back out to much higher cost than something like patching a game so that's not but they're not wrong i mean that that is a very true thing it happens all the time 
And that's a good thing to be able to fix a game. <laughs> and obviously they found some issues. But clearly this game was not finished. They're talking about, let's see here. They're talking about quests are more balanced. RPG progression is smoother. The game runs faster and is very stable. So was the game unstable when you sent it to get, when you sent it to gold to get printed? The game was unstable? I mean, wh wh what? Okay, well, what happens if this company had gone under after they went gold? So the game comes out and we're stuck with a non-patched crappy copy of the game. This sort of stuff really irritates me. And I understand they were probably getting to the point where they had to release the game. But so three more months would have made it more stable. You couldn't push the release date back from February 13th to May. I just don't like it. I'm not buying that sort of stuff. And I think that's really crappy of a company to do that. Now, also, the other thing I noticed in here is this, this, this actually, this sentence here really tells me that they're very taking some attacks very personally. <laughs> so we could have used these three months to get some rest, or we could use it to create some additional content and sell it to you as DLC. But we went to the version to be released and worked on it and tweaked it and polished it. And the results are obvious. So they're saying, well, we could have, you know, we've been working so hard. We could have taken a break, but we didn't for you. We, we could have uh, made additional content to sell to you as DLC, but we didn't for you. <laughs> And, and we could have, but we went, you know, we, but we went back to the version and sold it as DLC. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Warhorse for taking your broken ass of a game and spending a few more months to fix it. So that when it came out, it wasn't a broken mess of a game. Thank you. Thank you. I just, I've never felt so loved before. You know, I mean, give me a break. I, I, this sort of stuff really pisses me off and I'm not normally this cynical, but that pisses me off when I read something like that. Like, yes, you guys have been working your ass off on this game, but it's still a product you're making for me, the consumer. If you don't make that game good, that's not my fault. And that's not my problem. Okay. I'm giving you money. You owe a good game to all the backers that, that kickstarted your project. You owe a good game to the people that are going to drop 60 bucks down on it. I mean, you owe us that because we're paying you for that. This is not some sort of entitlement thing. It's a product. It's this commercialism. I mean, you make a product, I buy it. I have an expectation of that product. Boom, it's done. So uh, that was uh, that was sort of their comment about you know from that. Then uh, they went on to say, where was the other quote now? Because there was a, I lost it. Let's see here. Um, there was. Uh, There was another quote basically from someone at Deep Silver. So this is someone who hasn't worked on the game. Probably shouldn't be talking about things because he doesn't understand what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> let me just try to find the article here. <laughs> because this one I found really annoying. Uh, okay, let's see. Okay, so this is Will Powers, the senior manager of marketing and public relations. Um let me stop the quote. Let me stop the rumor mill dead in its tracks before everyone continues jumping to conclusions. He went, on, he went on to explain that the way the game's data is structured requires that even slight changes to each two gigabyte archive requires to re-download the entire section of the game. Uh, that being said, this is a major patch that improves overarching mechanisms throughout the game. Essentially, you're having to re-download the game to replace those files. Uh, so this is, this is a list of the patch notes on the PlayStation four, uh, new events in the open world animations during dialogue, animations during dialogue. Thanks. So were they not going to speak before? 
And again, they went gold with this? Okay, anyway. Uh, money and experience rebalancing, totally normal. Weapon and armor rebalancing, totally normal for stuff like that to come out after uh, after launch. Combat improvements, NPC reactions, sound, and the user interface itself. It is also the usual bug fixes and improvements. <sighs> I mean... I don't like how defensive these guys are already. <laughs> like the news comes out about it. They should be doing a positive spin, but instead they're on their back feet. Like, Oh, oh well, well, okay. And then they're angry. Right. Like, Oh, let me stop the rumor mill dead right in his tracks. Now I'm not picking on this game. I know it sounds like I'm, I'm not picking on this game, but I'm picking on the practice and that these guys, it doesn't seem r smart to me that they're doing two gigabyte archives. And that if you change something in every one, you have to redownload every archive. That seems weird to me. And it seems like, now I'll be honest, I have actually designed a game before and I've created it to completion, but it wasn't that big. We didn't have archiving. We didn't have huge gigabyte downloads. So I honestly don't know how that works, but no other game I've ever seen has had a patch that big unless it was a 4k patch for like quantum break or some of the, some of the, um, high res texture packs and stuff like that for like the Xbox one X. So, um, uh, apparently there's an update though, that the, uh, the steam version will have the 20 gig day one patch will be part of the initial download since there was no pre downloading on steam, but I'm not picking on this company and I'm not picking on this game, but what I'm picking on is the practice. I don't like that, that nowadays you can ship a game that you clearly are not happy with clearly needs more work. You can ship it and then expect us to be okay with a day one patch. Now, obviously it's free patch, duh. And that's fine. It's better, better than not having a free patch, but these are the sort of things I, I don't know. I don't like it. I really don't like it. It really, it really shows a lack of forethought. I think in the design that they, they clearly, clearly this game was not ready to launch when they went gold. And that, that bums me out. And it wasn't something they found after they shipped it. Like, they shipped it knowing. They must have had to hit a release date. I don't know if Deep Silver put their foot down and said it has to come out this month. I don't know what happened. But whatever happened, you know, they, they shipped an incomplete game. And that's really frustrating to me. Like, like I have higher expectations than that uh, of different uh, of game companies. And this is definitely, you know, this is definitely not good in my opinion. So then lastly, I want to talk about the final story uh, is that Monster Hunter World has now officially shipped 6 million copies. Now that is shipped, not sold. It is a very important distinction. Oftentimes you'll hear like in the console wars, especially you'll hear, you know, oh, th this game sold a billion copies. And then you're like, well, this one shipped a billion and one. You're like, oh, but it shipped them. That means they could be sitting on the shelf at Walmart for all we know. So again, Monster Hunter World. Now, there are plenty of copies of Monster Hunter World around, but they are not sitting, that's for sure. They have shipped that many because the game is selling very, very well. It's also on the top of the digital list for Xbox One and PS4. So I just want to do a quick hats off to Capcom. They've been working on Monster Hunter for the last four years. It's the best Monster Hunter they've ever done. Um, I definitely could use some more monsters and some more variety, some more end game, but it's incredible. It is an excellent game, and uh, it's definitely worth the accolades it's getting. However, there were some people, <laughs> namely uh, Nintendo fans, that are not happy with Monster Hunter World, mostly because they don't want to deal with, well, they, they can't get the game, quite frankly. Um, the game came out on Xbox One and PS4. It is coming to PC later, but it's not on the Switch, which really bummed people out, and it's not on the 3DS. Now, it can't be on the 3DS because this game runs 
uh, it's beautiful game. It's a huge game. The format of this game, it would not work on a handheld. Not saying they couldn't downscale it and get it on the Switch, but I wanted to read a quote because this was the actual developers of Monster Hunter World explaining why it's not on the Switch. And they had to do this because there was a huge outcry. And I was actually reading different comments this morning, people complaining that it's terrible Monster Hunter game and that Monster Hunter 4 Ultimate's the best one they've ever played still. And I mean, yeah, I get it that you want your Monster Hunter to be portable, but this game kicks serious ass. Um, but anyway, this is uh, this was the quote from uh, Kaname Fujiko, from uh, who and his fellow director Yuya Tokuda. They've offered another reason. So this is the this is the reason why it's not on the Switch. We quote: We don't have any plans for the Switch at the moment. Part of the reason is that the title has been in development for almost four years. At the time, we had to commit to our hardware choices. We decided on using the most powerful current generation consoles available at the time, which was PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. So the decision was made before the Switch was even announced or on sale. Okay, so duh. They didn't make a game for the Switch because the Switch wasn't even a concept yet. Um, it's also because every title we decide what the best fit for the hardware is for the concept. We don't just look at everything. It's more of, if we want to achieve this kind of game concept, where's the best place to achieve that? And for this title, the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One were the best fit for us. So again, Switch owners, don't be mad. I understand you're a little salty because they didn't port over Monster Hunter XX, which I think actually should have been done since Monster Hunter World was not coming to the Switch. Now, you could argue that maybe Monster Hunter World is coming to the Switch, and maybe that's why they're not bringing XX. Maybe they started cranking once the Switch was announced, and now that it's been selling well, it's been out almost a year, now they can go and figure out how that port's going to work. Maybe. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll do another Monster Hunter in the series for the Switch, and they'll keep the two series separate. Who knows? Um, doesn't matter to me, because I can. I, I prefer Monster Hunter on the console, and I can play it on Switch with a Pro Controller on my TV, so I have no problem with that. But it's it goes again to, you know, you want to talk about entitlement. We, we, we talked about a little bit earlier with Kingdom Come, you know, how that's not entitlement when you buy a game and have an expectation. It is entitlement, though, if you expect a game coming to make the game specifically for you. And if it's not for you, then it's not good. And, and that's just not the case. It's okay. I mean, there's oftentimes there's games that I don't like that are still good games. They just, I don't like them. And it's okay for us to be able to say it. And I understand that people are burned. And that's that's how I felt when it made the jump to 3DS. Because I didn't want to play it on the 3DS. I wanted to play a newer, nicer looking version that was like open world, open style, free hunting. I wanted that. And then it went to the 3DS where it was basically the PS2 version again and again and again. No problem. <laughs> I'm, I, I still played them, still loved them. But those people can't complain that we lost a console version for them as a handheld and then they're complaining when it comes back to consoles. You know, it's just frustrating. That to me is entitlement. And that's all I want to say. I just want to give them a quick shout out real quick to um, just want to do a quick shout out there for uh, um, Monster Hunter. Congratulations, Monster Hunter. You're doing great. Uh, and that's all the news articles we had for today. The last thing we're going to talk about, as always, we're going to cover our game of the week. So my game of the week, Mystical Fighter for the Sega Genesis. If you've never heard of this game, that's okay. Most people haven't. It's actually surprisingly uh, a very uncommon game, and it's kind of pricey. Uh, the game itself, I want to say complete, runs around 80 to 100 bucks. Um, and it's pretty much just a, a, a Streets of Rage or Final Fight style beat-em-up. Uh, however, you are... Mystical fighters, essentially. Oh, let me read you the back here. You're you're standing at the gate of time. Uh, you'll be transported back to the Shogun Dynasty, where you take up the cause of the mystical fighters. So basically, you kind of look like uh, Kabuki <laughs> theater dudes, um, but it's a really good beat 'em up, man. The sound's really good, and it you know it's Genesis, so it sounds crunchy, but that sound engine kind of fits really well with uh, with like um, 
you know, music from this, uh, th- this region, uh, and time frame. So it was really, really good. Actually. Um, it's a really good beat em up. Highly recommended. Check it out. And as always, thank you everybody for watching. If you haven't subscribed to us on YouTube and you like us, please, please subscribe. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, just mash that subscribe button down there. If you're listening to this on iTunes or on SoundCloud, uh, the podcast, I so, so appreciate that as well. If you can check out our YouTube channel, please do hop over. You can go to droprate.life. That'll take you to our YouTube channel or just go to YouTube and search for the drop rate. Um, and then lastly, this was something I didn't want to put this at the beginning of the podcast because I don't think most people would care. And it's not really bragging, but I did want to talk about it. I, I am so, so proud of our channel right now. We, we broke a thousand subs. Um, I did a couple videos over the last few weeks, my last few podcasts talking about, um, Todd Rogers, scores and talking about, um, Billy Mitchell being accused of playing games on a MAME arcade instead of on a legit arcade to achieve some of his scores and there being fake tapes and stuff. And, those videos did really, really well. And I'm so proud of that. And I, I so much appreciate everybody who listened and commented and liked those videos. And even the people that gave me some, some criticism, I appreciate that too. But we, we grew 400 subs in the last like three weeks. And I can't almost believe that we were able to break a thousand. We thought after um, the new YouTube policies requiring you to beat a thousand subs to be monetized, we thought we were going to get demonetized and then have to go remonetized around the summer sometime. We thought we'd get there. And so it just kind of, makes me feel really good to know that we we got past the thousand threshold we've got our watch time and videos like we we were really spinning up some good content and so i just wanted to thank everybody for that and all the support and it's it's so much fun and i, I love doing this now and to, to know that like the videos we do and the hard work we do put into some of this stuff it is really paying off and it's worth it so thank you thank you thank you everyone i'm so happy and so humbled um and i so appreciate everybody who listens Thank you as always. Everybody have a great day. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.